Hi, I'm Dale Sherbeck, and welcome to the HQ, a CHA Learning and Healthcare Can podcast serial, where we dive into healthcare issues and topics from the perspective of its people and discuss them with those that are leading in the health system. Together, we'll try to unpack these topics and learn what actions are being taken to innovatively solve them today. As we've been hearing since we began the HQ, our COVID-19 pandemic has impacted every aspect of our health system and its people. And where there has rightly been a lot of focus on the impacts to our care services, patients, residents, and our health professionals, we haven't yet discussed the impact it has had on our ability to learn and to teach. In an earlier episode of the HQ, during my conversation with Samantha Hamilton, we talked about the impact of the past few years on quality improvement. We discussed why that is so critical, because if learning isn't a priority, how will we learn from this pandemic and all the richness of adaptation and innovation we've experienced? And over the past couple of years, way more times than I can count, we keep hearing that a crisis is a horrible opportunity to waste. But what makes a crisis so special? Is it because a crisis reduces people's ability to remain within their comfort zones? It forces us to change and the following the old adage, necessity is the mother invention, then a crisis gives us the necessity and the impetus to explore options that previously were viewed as unworthy, unrealistic, or too difficult prior to the crisis. And in my view, most learning and innovation happens when we step outside our comfort zones. All of this becomes not only interesting, but essential as we have needed to both marshal our knowledge and our learning through the pandemic and learn as we're doing, but also adapt from formal learning practices to rapidly reskill, side-skill, upskill our health professionals to fill the necessary roles in our healthcare systems. This was critical all through the pandemic, but as the HHR alarm bells continue to sound and ERs close all across the country for lack of staff, this has become even more vital. This becomes crystal clear when you talk about the impact of the crisis on a learning organization like that of University Health Network and the Michener Institute of Education at UHN, Canada's only post-secondary institution that is formerly part of a hospital system and which is solely focused on the applied training and education of health professionals. So to discuss all of this today and learn more, I'm joined by Maria Tassone, Executive Director at UHN and the Michener Institute. Maria holds a Bachelor of Science in Physical Therapy and a Master of Science as well. And she is an Assistant Professor in the Department of Physical Therapy at Temerity Faculty of Medicine, University of Toronto. She is passionate about the interface between practice, education, and research, and leading change in complex systems. Her early scholarly work focused on how healthcare professionals learn and translate learning into practice. Her experiences in collaborative leadership for health system change contributed to the development, implementation, and evaluation of the Collaborative Change Leadership Program, for which Maria is currently co-director. Over the course of her career, Maria has been recognized as a leader in innovation related to education and practice with the 3M Team Innovation Award and the Ontario Hospital Ted Freeman Award for Education Innovation. And each time I've spoken with Maria, I'm constantly struck by her passion and commitment to helping others to grow, to professional development, and to knowledge translation in general. Hi, Maria, and welcome to the HQ. Hi, Dale. Great to see you. Yes, it's great to talk to you again today. So, um, and it's nice to talk to a fellow educator um, and learning development professional. So, um, about something that certainly is, you know, so integral to my identity and and career. So, first off, let me congratulate you uh, and your team for earlier this year winning the 2021 Ted Freeman Award for Innovation in Education. Thank you. Yeah, it's exciting. Um, so maybe that's a good place to start our conversation. Maybe you could tell me about the initiative for which you were recognized. Yes, it's incredible to think back now, uh, just over, gosh, two and a bit years, right at the start of the pandemic, actually. And um, it was late March uh, 2020. And certainly in the Toronto region where where we're situated in terms of my own organization, there was a regional uh, plan and response to COVID in terms of capacity planning, everything from a new model of care to um, 
number of beds and how people would move across the system in terms of health human resources. And what was wonderful at the time is that the group really quickly realized that if a new interprofessional model of care that really extended uh, people's skills to the limits of their scope of practice was going to be put in place, then there needed to be an education strategy to go along with it and really, really quickly. So I got a call from my boss <laughs> and my CEO <laughs> and we were, we were asked, um, and I'll come back to the we in a moment, uh, in 10 days, so for an April 1st, 2020 launch to develop and uh, put in place an online platform that would support the redeployment of many different kinds of healthcare professionals in the Toronto region. And that was daunting. Um, we were asked to not let perfect or great uh, get in the way of good and mm -hmm. to think about you know, all those great principles of education, um, high quality, accessible, uh, meaningful, relevant, accurate, obviously, but put something in place, as I said, for 10 days. And what we heard within days of that was that every region in Ontario was thinking about how would they get the appropriate um, learning in place to upskill folks to be able to move um, to different places where they've either never practiced or hadn't practiced in a really long time. So for example, you know, someone, a nurse perhaps working in general internal medicine who might be redeployed to the intensive care unit to support mm -hmm. the team there. So what quickly became, uh, started as a regional effort became a province-wide effort. And so within 10 days, a team of what was by the end of the initiative, 60 people and organizations uh, across the system, educators, practitioners, subject matter experts, instructional designers, simulationists, researchers came together to quickly put in place a learning platform that would at minimum enable people to feel comfortable and confident having reviewed their specific um, learning package to be onboarded in a new setting and then start caring for really critically ill um, patients. So we started actually as criticalcarelearning.ca um, and within weeks, we started hearing about the uptick and then huge numbers in long-term care. And so we were asked to, uh, remember two and a half years ago, the word pivot, <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> which I try not to use. We were asked to pivot and do what we had done for the um, acute care hospital sector for long-term care. And so we did the, the same. We brought together um, the necessary people to be able to very, very quickly develop a long-term care stream of education and you know what since then everything what we've done actually as a team is just continue to pay attention to what is emerging what is the need how do we need to adapt this platform that now has about seventeen thousand plus users to make sure that people have what they need and so if you look at the site now which is covidcarelearning.ca um, you'll see packages of learning for individual professions, packages of learning for anyone on a team. So, you know, packages related to wellness and resilience to infection control, to ethics, mm -hmm. bioethics, as well as streams, not only in acute care and long-term care, but in community care, um, vaccination, and probably most recently long COVID. And, um, so we're really proud of the work and, and the we, as I said, is uh, 60 plus people and organizations, which was a feat in and of itself to be able to bring that group together across the province. Wow. So did you get a lot of sleep over that period of time? I, I wish I could say I did. I probably slept well in the hours that I was sleeping. Um, I will say the team was on hand and it's not, not something I would ever want to repeat like this part. Uh, isn't anything to be proud of when I think about where we are now with the health human resource issues in our country and the need for people to, you know, three other words being used a lot, rest and recover, particularly as we get to the end of summer, but they were very long days. And, you know, I, I'm, I'm not going to 
be facetious. We, we were not caring for patients at the point of care. So not to compare at all to the incredible dedication and, you know, extra shifts and the sort of constant on-call nature of our healthcare professionals at the point of care. But I've certainly never worked on an education initiative where we were working constantly 12 to 16 hour days over many, many months to be able to do what I said earlier, uh, look at what's emerging, quickly put a strategy and a team of people in place and, and offer something that was necessary in the moment that couldn't really wait. So we have found since then some, some, some downtimes, but it was, um, I would say the first six to nine months were, were pretty tiring but exhilarating at the same time, because I, I mean, I've been working in healthcare for over 30 years and in education for a very long time. As you said, my early career started with the idea of really being curious about how do healthcare professionals learn and, and put that learning into practice. So this experience was the most rapid health professions education initiative I've ever been part of. And, and it was exhilarating. It was incredible to think about what's possible when you can stay true to some of those principles of high quality education, but mm -hmm. move really fast and um, some really good learnings there for sure. Yeah, we use the word because I mean, I, I think, you know, we, we, we certainly talk about, you know, the need for rapid learning and development a lot in uh, in the field of education, but I think you've certainly taken it to a new level. So, um, you know, I, as I said, I, I, it's my profession. And so I can appreciate, you know, what the a typical sort of program development sort of would take to sort of build something like this. But, you know, for, for others that maybe are not educational sort of, uh, you know, professionals that haven't made it their life work, you know, help put this in perspective about what's, really different about this compared to the way education normally would be developed or perhaps the way your team was developing it before? That's a, yes. So let, let, let me say a few things there. <laughs> uh, so having, having had um, the opportunity to work with many educational development teams, let's call them that. So groups of people who, who mm -hmm. as you say, kind of develop programs and this is a very rough kind of estimate and example, but it wouldn't be uncommon for program development from sort of the stage of you have a collaborator or a client or a group of people who want to develop something. And you start with some questions to really start to understand their needs and do a proper needs assessment mm -hmm. and, and iterate. And then by the time you actually offer the, the, the educational program, it can be four to six months. And that's, that's pretty fast, actually. Yeah, yeah, I, I, don't know if fast. That I don't know if that resonates for you, Dale, like that's pretty fast. Um, so I'm drawing on my work in the interprofessional sphere, having been um, at what was the Center for Interprofessional Education at the University of Toronto, and recently renamed to the Center for Advancing Collaboration in Healthcare and Education, CASH. Um, that would be a typical kind of cycle for us. And then maybe moving over to the Michener Institute of Education at UHN, where we have a very robust continuing education team, it can take up to a year to develop a full, let's say, certificate program where you actually mm -hmm. have some kind of certificate or credential at the end. So four to six to 12 months, anywhere in there. So when, when you think about 10 days, like being charged with do it in 10 days, because as we all know, it couldn't wait. Um, that's, uh, that's kind of unheard of. And so, you know, to the question of like, what did it take? Um, what was different? I would say a couple of things. One, and I've been really interested in how you bust through silos or navigate through silos and hierarchy in healthcare and health professions education for a very long time. They just came down. People's openness to collaborate, where collaborations were not so easy before, um, that openness was, was immense, as well as 
not just collaborating on, um, on, on developing this education strategy, but actually offering up education that might have what we typically think of in an academic setting as, as intellectual property around it. So yeah. the, the strategy, because it was so quick, didn't really involve development. It was more curation, looking for best examples of quality education and then curating them in a way that made it make sense, um, that made it accessible to people who were being quickly redeployed. So to have you know, colleagues from a university or a hospital just say, here's the curriculum, or we will adapt the curriculum, or we will you know, offer up one of our faculty or one of our leaders a day a week to work with you on this, or you can have a member of our team for the next two weeks or two months. It was, um, it was incredible to see those silos come down and for people not even to use the word intellectual property. I mean, anytime you're working with a new partner or collaborator on co-creating some kind of education, that's often one of the things that comes up first. Yes. Didn't even We're, enter the conversation. Yeah, yeah, so there's a shared purpose for sure. For sure. Um, and I would also say just um, like a commitment to learn as we go. We we embedded in all of our, we created a provincial task force and, and that was really purposeful, not just in terms of having subject matter expertise, but we we reached out to people who had their pulse on what was going on both at the micro, meso, and macro level of healthcare organizations. So we could ask questions about like what's going on, what's needed. So that commitment to within each meeting, spending some time on what, what we framed as developmental evaluation, what's working, what's not, what's happening, how do we need to change what we're doing, both in terms of task and our process as a task force um, and team was front and center. So really good principles, not just of education, but of collaboration and, and learning, like how do you do that quickly? Yeah, it's in interesting. So, I mean, for many of our listeners, you know, in healthcare, the PDSA cycle is certainly well known and, and it's in, you know, branded on most brains in education. I guess our version of that is, is what we call ADDI, right? Of the assess, design, develop, instruct, and evaluate. Um, so. I guess what I'm conscious of is that you are redefining that ADDI model to some degree, you're paring it down, you're stripping certain things out. Um, you're probably taking some risks in that, some of those quality control checkpoints that might be there, assume, you know, to get you to that perfect place that you said that you let perfect not be the enemy of good in this case. So, you know, in reflecting on that, you know, do you do you have a sense of what you cut out of that normal instructional sort of development process, sort of to get to this lean, I guess, if I can use that word, model of development? I, I guess what I would um, say to that, and 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 now I'm thinking about so my own teaching practice, as you mentioned in your uh, introduction, is within the space of collaborative leadership, mm -hmm. and so you know in that kind of field, there's a lot of attention paid to deep engagement of diverse perspectives as you're developing something and co-creation. Mm -hmm. So those two things had to be stripped down in the sense of, you know, at the front end, we paid a lot of attention to who, as I said, who needs to be on the task force to really continually inform what's happening, who are our subject matter experts. But we had to strip away things like, you know, often in education, you might have an advisory committee that you take a draft of something and go back to and then iterate. So that kind of back and forth engagement before you get to a more perfect product, that, that needed to go. And so mm -hmm. we had to trust that the people who were our subject matter experts and task force members and advisors uh, were informing and engaging with us in the best way possible. And certainly that spirit was there. And, and I feel pretty confident we had, you know, 99% of the time, the right people at, at the table, but never shy to say who else needs to be here that we don't have. So um, 
that that longer term back and forth engagement and co-creation did need to be stripped away, but we still stay true to co-creation and um, engagement. As a leader, so I, I chaired the task force and I worked with two co-leads on the education side, Mohammed Salia and Karen Chaitin, uh, who were both uh, the three of us were kind of the lead recipients on the award. So it certainly wasn't me alone. And quite frankly, we represent those 60 people um, and organizations that uh, collaborated with us. But Mohammed and Karen and I were the this very small project team. So any decisions were um, most often made by the three of us and our executive sponsor, Brian Hodges. Mm-hmm. Who's our Who's our executive vice president of education and chief medical officer at UHN and and Michener. So we did have some checkpoints. Um, there wasn't one sole person, um, but again, it, for me, it's unusual to do a lot of the executive decision making. Typically, uh, I would, as a leader, leave that within kind of a broader group. But there was no time for that. And because things were changing so quickly, like, okay, now can you do something for long-term care? That happened over a weekend with uh, leaders within the Ministry of Health, conversations on a Saturday, Sunday, and a decision was needed on, on some things before we even got to our Monday task force meeting. And so I found myself as, as chair of that task force going into a meeting saying, now I would typically bring this to the group for discussion, but for these reasons, we did make an executive decision about how we would move forward with our education package for long-term care. So I found myself um, needing to make more decisions as a leader mm-hmm. at times because of the pace, but really thinking about, I constantly ask myself that question, what does collaboration look like when we're moving fast? So again, try to keep those kinds of reflections and questions front of mind, recognizing that as I said, right at the beginning of this question, we could not co-create and engage in the way that I would have wanted to in a regular development cycle. Yeah, it's, I mean, it, it, it's fascinating. And, and I know I'm probably nerding out a little bit in this space, but, but I mean, I, I'm reflecting on, right, the, the value of leadership in educational development in this space and, and your own leadership and that of your team in this. I'm also reflecting on, I guess, the different capabilities or competencies that you and your team brought to this that maybe aren't necessarily normally reflected in terms of how we assemble education teams. Um, and I'm, you know, maybe that's a subject for another conversation um, or some sort of, you know, uh, a, you know, post analysis of, of what it took to make this happen. But I do wonder um, if you might reflect on, you know, like the people that you were working with were highly skilled and highly expert. I think probably not, not just SMEs in this, in the typical sense, um, they were probably extraordinary people and perhaps they even brought with them certain education skills and capabilities, which many subject matter experts in my experience don't bring. They are knowledgeable. They're technical experts, right? They're not necessarily expert in translating that into education. Um, so I, I don't know, in terms of what I've just shared with you, would you reflect in terms of what it took, like specifically in terms of those skills, competencies, capabilities to make that happen that we can learn from and maybe bring to other kinds of development projects? Oh, for sure. And and two things come to mind. One is, I'm going to call it like the back office of education, which most often gets very little airtime or you don't see it when you see amazing online learning in action Mm -hmm. so one of the groups I didn't mention I talked about instructional designers but our digital education experts to be able to to do uh, what we did in you know a short period of time there was a whole digital infrastructure that needed to be built uh, on a Moodle platform I've learned a lot about these sorts of things and contracts with infrastructure engineers and you know so when I think about that how lucky were we that we were embedded in a sizable organization such as the university health network where those kinds of departments are pretty robust and so we could beg borrow and steal um 
people who understood education, but who had that digital uh, background or expertise. So that's one group we heavily drew on. Um, couldn't have done done it with without that group. But the second thing I would say is, and again, it was a combination of right time, <laughs> right place for me personally as a leader. I was just finishing my second term as the director of what's now CASH um, and what was the Center for Interprofessional Education at the University of Toronto. And one of the things that that role gave me um, over a decade plus was the ability to work with leaders across the system in education, in professional practice, in hospitals, in colleges, in universities. So I understood, uh, and, 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 and Brian Hodges has Sorry, Maria, we lost you for a bit there with the technical problems as happens with recording at a distance. So um, maybe you can sort of pick up your answer again um, with respect to how Brian was reflecting and, um, and continue from there. Yeah, so, so Brian was reflecting back to me that one of the things that was of huge value to this initiative during my time at the Center for Interprofessional Education at the time was this idea that we were working so closely with many hospital leaders in education, in professional practice, at the executive level of an organization, and we were working with other universities and colleges. So to be in a position where one understood how hospitals work, how mm -hmm. different portfolios work, how academic organizations work, and then to think about who the people in those organizations might be to join our task force or who could be subject matter experts. We, we were just so lucky that we had a lot of those relationships already, given the mandate of the center. So I would say, you know, what it takes as we now think about taking those learnings and applying it to other things is really understanding how healthcare systems work and health professions education systems work there's value there because as you know and, and we've talked about in other conversations there's still a lot of silos between education practice human resources and organizational development quality portfolios they're starting to work together mm -hmm. um, but not so much and so i think what people might not see as visible in in an initiative like this is uh, really understanding how those different organizations are structured and and where the educators are because they're hidden all over the place. Um, and so being quickly able to identify that was critical to this initiative. Yeah, and I certainly, I know I, I you know, was very, I guess, vocal in, in reflecting probably halfway through the pandemic in terms of what it was giving us, right, was this collaboration across all kinds of things, not just education. Um, and that was certainly a gift of, you know, how it brought people together to work together on, you know, something that we didn't understand we were all learning about. But I think you're certainly reflecting in terms of how that works um, in the context of education, because it's always a collaborative space anyways. But in this case, yes. you're putting it in a you're amping it up or putting it on steroids, I guess, if I can yes. say. Um, so maybe sort of building from that and, and you, as you're talking about how things work within, you know, the health system and how you bring these things together. So, you know, I, I dare say it's probably still too soon to say what life after COVID is going to be like. Um, yeah, I don't know if there's really ever going to be an after, but um but certainly, you know, thinking about the work that you've done in your program and, and the innovations you've, you've sparked over this, you know, where do you see this emerging in the next phase or chapter or wherever that might be as how we want to define it? Yeah, maybe um, a, a couple of things. Uh, one is I'm hearing the concept of developmental evaluation everywhere now. So, uh -huh. I mean, that's a concept <laughs> we've been working with for over a decade um, in the evaluation space. And, and so, you know, the idea that sometimes we don't do common sense things in healthcare and health professions education, you know, you have a plan and often in, 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 in change management, you want to get from A to B in a particular way. And mm -hmm. if you have to divert from that plan, 
your course correcting because you've, you know, the philosophy is you've made some kind of a mistake. Um, right. At least that's the way I look at it. And so, you know, I think about my, my son who finished a, a wonderful business degree a few years ago and still a lot of the change models that they're learning about in business school, they're very linear. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, when I think about developmental evaluation and building in, as I was saying earlier, those questions of what's emerging, how do we need to adapt? How do we learn from what's changing and adapt is not typical of planned change. And so I think one of the things that I hope we retain in both healthcare and health professions education is this idea that we're not working in simple or even complicated systems. These are complex adaptive systems to take Mm -hmm. from the leadership literature that are meant to shift and change. And therefore, we need to always be asking that question about what's changing and how do we change our plan and that that should be normalized. So, um, you know, the command and control, the, the linear way of thinking, it's still as it's changing, but there's still that kind of dominance in healthcare. And, and I think that's one of the things I would love to retain. So I'm hopeful hearing about people, at least within the education space, saying, oh, have you heard about developmental evaluation? This is a very cool thing that kind of blends um, this idea that we work in systems that are constantly changing. So I'm really enjoying those conversations. So that spirit of constant inquiry as we develop, um, you know, you talked about the PDSA cycle and to use one of your words in this conversation, it's like taking that on steroids and, and privileging the fact that there needs to be learning and adaptation across the whole cycle and it needs to be explicit and it needs to be embedded in every conversation, every meeting, every part of the cycle. So I would say that's one thing. Yeah, but I think, and if I can interrupt for a second, I think what you're also describing is that you're not doing that at the end of a project. That's right. Right. right? In the true, again, in our language, it it means something specific. Rapid development is learning as you're going, right? Um, Right. And, and, you know, investing those learnings in the next phase or the next chapter or the next unit or module of a course. Yes. But I think this philosophy needs to be embedded beyond education into everything we do in healthcare. I mean, if we were embedding developmental evaluation, imagine at at the executive level um, Mm -hmm. in every senior management meeting or board meeting or in every initiative, um, you know, that, that, that we're working on, um, that, that would be an incredible shift. And, and I think the second thing I would say is really paying attention to language and what it signals. This is so simple, but even the nuance, the nuance difference between saying we're working on a project versus an initiative. So a project to me signals there's a beginning and an end. Mm -hmm. And so one of the things that we talked about from the get-go around covidcarelearning.ca is this is an initiative. We're not sure where it's going. And so initiatives generally don't have an end. They just morph and evolve. And, you know, maybe you have a sunset date and maybe we'll get to a point where we say this platform is no longer needed or we're actually in conversations now about how does it need to evolve. But using the word initiative, um, you know, and sometimes my kids will tell me I focus too much on on language, but language is powerful. And I'm a big believer um, of uh, words create worlds. And so we did pay particular attention to the language we used around this particular initiative. Um, And I'd like to think that that made a difference. Um, So that's another learning from a, a leadership point of view. The third one I would say is, how do we ensure that the silos that opened (laughs) stay Mm -hmm. open? And I'm hopeful there too. I mean, if I draw on my own organization, uh, you know, conversations that are planned for the fall around, for example, leadership development have medical affairs and education and professional practice and human resources, what we're now calling people in culture at the same table. And mm-hmm. not all of those folks may have been at the table from the beginning. Um, so the, 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 the notion of silos and collaboration, I think is something that we need to retain. 
Um, so those are three things that come to mind. Yeah, well, those are those are great reflections, and I think you know what I hear in that too is is even that you're describing in in perhaps other words and more pragmatically, right? But that the learning organization, right? In some respects, right? About um, because it, if you get out those out of the silos and you start to collaborate in a meaningful, more permanent way, right? Then the organization can pivot, <laughs> adapt, innovate. Yes. Right, all of those special words, right, um, in real time, much more quickly. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. So, yeah, drawing on a lot of the early um, work by Peter Senge for sure on on learning organizations. The one thing I would lose from that metaphor is the concept of the organization as a brain. Um, mm -hmm. For me, it's a little bit it, like there's the risk of it being a little bit mechanistic, and yeah. so if we can figure out how to use you know, 90% of the principles around learning organizations and recognize that organizations, as I said earlier, are complex and constantly adapting, then I, I think that's, um, yeah, that is a great sort of framework to think about as we move beyond or into the next phase of COVID for sure. So thinking about that in, in maybe in the context of, you know, what is now taking over our preoccupation right around this health human resource crisis right the, the crisis of of uh our people and, and the and the lack thereof um you know so where and you talked a little bit about this around scope of practice i think at the very beginning so um where do you see the work that you're doing um you know as we keep moving forward in applying those learnings and, and the lessons you've taken from this as we try to tackle this other crisis that we're now finding ourselves within? That's a great question. And I feel in some ways like we're back in 2000 and I'm going to say somewhere between 2007 and 2009, so a while ago, when nationally the whole kind of discourse around interprofessional care, interprofessional education, team-based care, collaboration, um, really resurfaced. Um, not that it was necessarily new, but it was really rooted in the idea that uh, people needed, there was a need to work at your full, at one's own full scope of practice because we didn't have enough healthcare professionals um, across the system 15 years ago, certainly not in the, the way we're experiencing now, but th that movement nationally and provincially was, as I said, really anchored in the idea that scopes of practice were expanding, there were new professions, and we needed people to really use their unique gifts and skills to be able to work at full scope. And we're talking about the same thing now. Um, you know, as we're at this, what are we, you know, end of wave seven uh, of the pandemic, I think, I, I guess we can stop counting now. Mm -hmm. um, so we all know we don't have enough of our regulated and unregulated healthcare professionals and staff. We typically have not had, at least in the hospital sector, people working at full scope. And so you know, as roles are defined, and I think about role and scope quite differently. S scopes of practice to me are really big. And mm -hmm. then people have their roles in an organization, which are typically more defined, sometimes confined, depending on, you know, the size of the hospital or a clinical unit or the patient population or client population with whom you're working. So now we're asking people to really work to their full scope because we don't have enough. And I think that's really exciting. People want to be able to offer, as I said, their unique gifts and skills to care. Um, but I, I, I think from a mindset point of view, we're gonna need to, as leaders and as clinicians, be open to new members of teams uh, joining us. Mm -hmm. And not that they're new professions. So I think about in particular personal support workers in my own organization pre-pandemic, I think most people would say we didn't really have a lot of PSWs, personal support workers in the organization. And now at this phase of the pandemic, at last count, we had over 400. They may not all be 
PSWs in the sense of they all come with the same educational background or experience, but in an acute care hospital that also has primary care and, and, and uh, rehabilitation and and complex continuing care, those are huge numbers. Mm -hmm. And so how do we think about the integration of new team members um, in a way that honors their, their own unique skill set that ensures that people understand what their role and scope is and that there is kind of a change strategy associated with it so that those new team members are welcomed. And when you look back over the last 30 years in healthcare and new professions, new roles being attempted to be implemented in teams, the main reason that those new models of care fail is because there hasn't been role clarity. And so mm-hmm. how do we pay attention to not just adding people, but ensuring that the necessary work happens, um, that there's really strong communication, respect, role clarity, uh, conflict resolution, et cetera, like key competencies for um, extending and expanding our team-based models of care. So uh, that that's one thing I would sort of offer up. Yeah. And it, you know, when I hear you describe that, and I guess I'm reflecting, it was a bit of an aha moment for me too, right? So at the beginning of the pandemic, I think as you're describing in the initial parts of your program, there was all this redeployment that was happening, um, which in other words, right, was putting, was expanding scopes of practice for people. Um, and then that was sort of seen as sort of a, an episodic sort of reaction to need. Um, and now as we think of ourselves coming out of this and we're getting to a place of reimagining healthcare and having, you know, transforming the systems and trying to build up, right, for to sustain our systems, we're coming back to an explicit discussions around scope of practice again, or, you know, or getting people to work to the top scope of their practice, as some are describing. Um, and I guess what I'm saying is that I guess it's the same thing, to some degree, it's the same thing that we were doing at the beginning of the pandemic applied at the end of this, if this is the end, um, uh, but in a more permanent and perhaps more explicit way. I mean, is it is it the same thing or is there a nuance in that? I think at a conceptual level, it's the same thing. I think what's different is the urgency of the need um, and perhaps different types of healthcare providers being added into the mix. So as I said, personal support workers um, have existed pre-pandemic and Mm -hmm. we can certainly do a better job of integrating those into our teams. But I think we're gonna see the emergence of of new roles. So that's a little bit different. Um, Technical roles perhaps, um, you know, certainly with artificial intelligence and the high-tech environments that are, at least our hospitals are in, the opportunity to think about more assistant roles. What would it look like to have an assistant type role that blends both uh, care and technology? So for example, extending the scope of a respiratory therapist or a perfusionist or an anesthesia assistant we haven't had those types of roles in place before. So I think one of the differences is thinking about the skill mix within each profession and across the team that allows some of the more technical aspects of care to be um, shifted to other new members of the team to allow, for example, those respiratory therapists, those anesthesia assistants to be working to their full scope and focusing on the more complex tasks um, needed within their, their patient care. So bringing this, I guess, more full circle back to, I guess, the, the frame of our conversation here today. So if what you described there is sort of the model we need to aspire to perhaps going forward, what is the role then for professional development and learning practices to prepare for that? So I think there's a role both within um, the university and college sector and a role within uh, healthcare organizations themselves. And so (laughs) my challenge to universities and colleges 
for any of you listening would be how do we really, I'm going to say, tighten our development cycle? How can we truly be responsive and innovative to educational needs, which is going to mean more examples of rapid collaboration, not 10 days, but how can we challenge ourselves to reduce the time that's needed from that four to six to 12 month period for program development? Is there another way we can do that? Can, can we be faster? And as I said, more, more responsive. Um, on the hospital or the healthcare organization side of things, and this is something I'm, I'm going to say super excited to take a word from my children. I'm super excited. I'm um, excited now. <laughs> because my, my role is, is shifting um, and it'll be largely focused on professional development. So I think one of the things that organizational leaders need to pay attention to and this is a no-brainer because we're all doing it, is retention mm-hmm. of the precious health human resources we have. So we're never going to add the number that we need in the short term. We can extend our team-based models of care. Great. We can add new technical assistant roles. Wonderful. Those programs are typically shorter than um, for our regulated healthcare professionals, but we need to do a darn good job keeping the people we have. Mm-hmm. And we know that's an issue, um, especially we're losing our nurses. I don't need to tell anybody on this podcast that. But what we're hearing from our own staff um, within my organization is one of the things that they're looking for as part of staying in the organization is a recommitment to their career growth, to their development. And so I'm excited that for me, my role is, it's going to be a facilitative one to work much more closely with our human resources folks and our professional practice folks to craft for us a first corporate-wide professional development strategy for the organization. Um, and we, we have lots of professional and we've had lots of professional development in bits and pieces across the organization, but we've never put it all together and connected it in a corporate wide effort. So I think that's something organizations are going to grapple with uh, mm-hmm. and need to grapple with. For sure, that's not the only retention issue. There, uh, you know, as you know, there are lots of conversations about uh, remuneration um, and uh, the amount of hours that people work. But I, I think professional development is up there. And as soon as people have had the opportunity to do a little bit of rest and recovery, and I would like to come back to that too, um, they're looking for opportunities to learn and grow and organizations are going to need to visibly demonstrate that recommitment. Yeah. but it, And I, I think what you're also saying, or what I'm hearing is that, you know, sometimes doing something different is, is, is almost as good as a rest, right? In some respects, right? And, I, and that's not to diminish, right, the exhaustion and burnout of our folks, but moving somebody into a different role for a period of time, right, is a way to sort of also recuperate and recover perhaps as well, right? And, and I think what you're, you're saying is that, you know, professional development is not just sort of the plumbing and the infrastructure of how we develop people, right, but as part of our strategic you know, um, talent management, if that, if that word is still relevant, yes, um, yes. right. But, but how we, we, you know, invigorate and, and, and protect, um, the people that, that are so valuable to our, our services. Absolutely. And, and maybe I'll give two concrete examples of, um, some of the things that we're thinking about. So the first one is <laughs> in the spirit of what's old is new. And, uh, you know, if I reflect back on my own clinical practice, it was not uncommon to have roles in a hospital setting where you certainly had a good chunk of people dedicated to a specialty area, a a particular patient population, which is pretty much what we have now. But you also had generalist positions Mm -hmm. where you could literally every six months or every year rotate into different clinical areas. And with the move to program management in the 90s, early 90s, we lost that kind of opportunity for generalist practice. And I feel like the conversation we're having now, particularly in nursing, 
is nurses craving the opportunity to work in other settings. So, you know, maybe they're, they're not wanting to leave the profession, but perhaps uh, wanting a change. So mm-hmm. they've worked in intensive care for a period of time and, and they might like an opportunity working in general internal medicine or in neuro rehab. And we've lost that kind of flexibility within healthcare organizations to kind of move people around. So those are the types of conversations that are, are really, really important in terms of being able to move across the system. I think that would go a long way to keeping people. Um, so, you know, offering those kinds of experiments again that we had as a more regular organizational practice 30 years ago, 20 years ago. And then the other one is, and again, it's back to my own organization, we do a lot of um, international education. So we offer, and this is pre-pandemic because we haven't had a lot of international learners other than our fellows Mm -hmm. during the pandemic, but we offer all sorts of what I I call cool opportunities to come to Canada (laughs) to learn from our experiences in the Canadian healthcare system. So one model we have is called the personalized learning program. So an individual or a team from another country can come to Toronto and spend a week up to three months in an observership-based learning uh, program. They're all customized. So an individual or that particular team would have their own learning objectives. They're coupled with a clinician who also has an education background and they're incredible learning opportunities that, that we've offered internationally. And so now we're starting to look at some of these programs that we've offered out there and think about how do we offer them in here for our own staff? Again, Mm -hmm. common sense, we just haven't done it. And what prompted that discussion was, for example, some of our research colleagues being redeployed into other parts of the hospital, maybe running a respite center or uh, being part of the redeployment team and having a chance to see how the hospital works um, or having opportunities for shadowing. Those were highly valued and people are saying, we'd like more of those. And so how can we structure those in a way that are a learning opportunity and, and comes back to, it's just embedded in how we do things. It's part of the learning organization and and it allows people from one part of the hospital to maybe get um, a window into how other parts work in a way that they can bring back to their own work in the future. So two things, uh, as I said, thinking about how we more flexibly move people across the system as a way of keeping them and thinking about how we offer what we've done traditionally externally for our own staff. Yeah, well, I can see why you get super excited about some of this. Um, and it certainly, you know, gets me thinking too. And I, I think it's it's brilliant to, um, you know, because like the value of, of cross-training and, and as it might be defined in, in more layman's terms, right, is that you also build better team, I think, recognition, yes. um, empathy, right, understanding of other people's roles and responsibilities. And it does prepare you as an organization to be a bit more nimble or, in the time of crisis, right? You've got That's more, right. more skilled people. Um, but I also think that what you're describing around the, those learning opportunities of bringing people in observerships or however you might define it, you know, why not expand that, you know, outside of, you know, a, an organization or even a region, right? I know your family is, you have family in Thunder Bay, but, you know, why not bring somebody from Thunder Bay to UHN and vice versa or send somebody from, uh, you know, from the Ottawa hospital here to work in the Yukon and, and get, you know, a, a lens on how, you know, Indigenous programming might work there and bring that back here, right? So we have all these opportunities to learn from each other, but we don't do that, even within our own, you know, vast but small country. Oh, that excites me as well. Um We've used the word st- steroids a couple of times. I think you used it once and I used it once at least. <laughs> and and what, what it's reminding me of in this moment is these models exist. They're either serendipitous or they're one-offs or they're really small pilots. And so um, I'm going to take that back, Dale, and think about like how could we do that at a more 
systematic level at scale in partnerships, in partnership, obviously, with other organizations, because we can't do it alone. But you're right. I mean, being able to see the world outside your own little space, fishbowl, is, yeah. Yeah, yeah, your own little fishbowl is so important. But I also think, and something that I'm very much thinking about as I start this new role is timing. And so I don't want to underscore that while I'm generally very optimistic, a bit of an idealist, um, love to work from a strengths-based point of view, the timing of all of this is critical, as is the language, as I mentioned earlier. So to be concrete, even the most quote, resilient people I know over the last six months, the cracks have started to appear. People are tired. And I don't have the answer to this. I know this is a question that hospital CEOs and executive leaders are grappling with, which is how do we ensure that people have rest and recovery and we don't have enough people? That, that is a paradox. That is a tension. I don't have the answer to that. But we need to be, I think, mindful as we expand professional development offerings to ensure that they're really relevant to people's context. And in light of people needing that time for rest and recovery, I think we need to think more about educational models that are not the traditional certificates, you know, courses, obviously face-to-face. There will be a time and place for that. There will be lots of opportunity for ongoing online learning. But how can it happen closer and closer to the point of care? Um, so those are some of the things we need to think about. And, and I mentioned language again. Resilience has almost become a bad word. And so as we develop learning offerings, um, we need to be really, I think, mindful of what is the language that will really resonate for people. Um, and meets them where they're at in terms of this phase of the pandemic when they really do need a bit of a break. So learning can be a bit of a break. It changes mm -hmm. your, your day. It, it allows you to step away from um, your clinical work, you know, for a moment or for an extended period of time. And so um, that is one way to rest and recover is to do something different. Um, but people do need a physical and mental break from work. So that's something we and I will particularly pay attention to, both in terms of language and timing of any of our professional development initiatives. Yeah, I I, I, I agree. I mean, yeah, the learning certainly helps with that neuroplasticity side of things that does support resilience in other spaces, right? But it's not it's not a panacea for everything either. So um, it has a time in its place, but in in partnership with a, a larger strategy um, yes. around how we protect and support our, our people through this recovery side. Mm -hmm. And it's going to take investment. Um, right. So. Yes, it, it's going to take investment of um, time and human and fiscal resources. Um, so when I say a rededication, people are looking for a recommitment to professional development. Education sometimes is that easiest thing to whittle away in an organization. Mm -hmm. I've been part of many benchmarking exercises where you have, you know, external consultants coming in and examining every budget line of an organization. And it not, well, 100% of the time, I was going to say 99% of the time, 100% of the time, a question will be raised about the quote, education line or professional development line in a budget. And what is that for? That could be to support in part registration or tuition for a program. It could be for release time. It could be for backfill. But those lines are often the first things to go as mm -hmm. we look for efficiencies. And so it's a recommitment philosophically, but you're absolutely right. It's going to be a reinvestment of um, many kinds of resources. Well, you've given us lots to think about, um, lots to learn from Maria. I really appreciate the conversation we've had here today. It's uh, been very invigorating, and and I, I love your passion, your optimism. Uh, you know, you are uh, a 
you know, you personify a, um, a learning professional in my view, because, um, you know, we all have to be passionate about the possibility um, to be able to dedicate ourselves to helping others to learn and to grow. And I think you do that um, in spades. So thank you for spending the time with us today to help others learn from this. And I do hope they take away from some of these conversations, the lessons that they can take back to their own organizations. Thank you so much, Dale. It's been actually really nice to not only have this conversation with you, I hope people take something from it for sure, but it's a learning moment for me. It's been an opportunity to reflect on my own practice, the role in, into which I'm uh, moving, and also to take some things away from, from your words. So thank you as well. <laughs> thank you. Well, we'll have to do it again soon. So Sounds good. Okay. Thanks, Maria. You've been listening to The HQ, and I'm Dale Sherbeck, your host. You can find this and other future episodes on the CHA Learning website, Apple Podcasts, or Spotify. We'd love to hear what you think, so please follow us on our other social media channels. Thanks for joining us in this discussion today. Please join us next time.